Okay, ladies, I'm going to do something a, a little different. The book of Nahum, you know, tells the destruction of the great city of Nineveh. And there's much vivid description and imagery um, of what would take place. It, it kind of made me think of like the book of Revelation. So much is image, imagery. Um, and sometimes it's a little hard to kind of really grasp or understand exactly what um, was being said. Um, John, in the book of Revelation, you know, tried to describe what he had seen. And unless we had seen it with our own eyes, uh, we might not always understand exactly what he was trying to describe. So before we go into the message that the Lord's given me, I want to read you these three chapters from the New Living Translation. You may have an older Bible, the Living Bible. Well, this is a new living Bible, so to speak. It's a, a little bit even more current um, in, in today's uh, vernacular that we can understand. But listen, if you haven't read it in this, um, it, it almost sounds like a movie. It's so descriptive, you can just kind of imagine seeing this. And um, it says, this message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum who lived in Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and wrath. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and furiously destroys his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans and rivers dry up, the lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade, and the green forests of Lebanon wilt. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. Doesn't sound like the little old white-haired God that we sometimes picture in a rocking chair just saying, oh, come to me, everything is good, everything is fine. God is loving. He is our Abba Father, and he wants us to come to him. But we need to know both sides of the Lord. He is gracious and merciful and patient, but he's also holy. And his holiness demands justice and um, his wrath against sin. Okay, verse 7. The Lord is good. When trouble comes, he is a strong refuge, and he knows everyone who trusts in him. But he sweeps away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He pursues his foes into the darkness of night. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. His enemies, tangled up like thorns, staggering like drunks, will be burned like draw straw in a field. Who is this king of yours who dares to plot evil against the Lord? This is what the Lord says. Even though the Assyrians have many allies, they will be destroyed and disappear. Oh, my people, I have already punished you once, and I will not do it again. Now I will break your chains and release you from Assyrian oppression. And this is what the Lord says concerning the Assyrians in Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols in the temples of your gods. I am preparing a grave for you because you are despicable and don't deserve to live. Look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all your vows, for your enemies from Nineveh will never invade your land again. They have been completely destroyed. 
Nineveh, you are already surrounded by enemy armies. Sound the alarm, man the ramparts, muster your defenses and keep a sharp watch for the enemy attack to begin. For the land of Israel lies empty and broken after your attacks, but the Lord will restore its honor and power again. Shields flash red in the sunlight. The attack begins. See their scarlet uniforms. Watch as their glittering, glittering chariots move into position with a forest of spears waving above them. The chariots race recklessly along the streets and through the squares, swift as lightning, flickering like torches. The king shouts to his officers. They stumble in their haste, rushing to the walls to set up their defenses. But too late. The river gates are open. The enemy has entered. The palace is about to collapse. Sounds like a movie that my husband would love to watch. Nineveh's exile has been decreed, and all the servant girls mourn its capture. Listen to them moan like doves. Watch them beat their breasts in sorrow. Nineveh is like a leaking water reservoir. The people are slipping away. Stop, stop, someone shouts, but the people just keep on running. Loot the silver, plunder the gold. There seems no end to Nineveh's many treasures. It's vast, uncounted wealth. Soon the city is an empty shambles, stripped of its wealth. Hearts melt in horror and knees shake. The people stand aghast, aghast, their faces pale and trembling. Where now is that great Nineveh, lion of the nations, full of fight and boldness, where the old and feeble and the young and tender lived with nothing to fear? O Nineveh, you were once a mighty lion. You crushed your enemies to feed your cubs and your mate. You filled your city and your homes with captives and plunder. I am your enemy, says the Lord Almighty. Your chariots will soon go up in smoke. The finest of your youth will be killed in battle. Never again will you bring back plunder from conquered nations. Never again will the voices of your proud messengers be heard. How terrible it will be for Nineveh, the city of murder and lies. She is crammed with wealth to be plundered. Listen, hear the crack of the whips as the chariots rush forward against her. Wheels rumble, horses' hooves pound, and chariots clatter as they bump wildly through the streets. See the flashing swords and glittering spears in the um, upraised armies of the cavalry. The dead are lying in the streets, dead bodies, heaps of bodies everywhere. People stumble over them, scramble to their feet, and fall again. All this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithful city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all to worship her false gods, enchanting people everywhere. No wonder I am your enemy, declares the Lord Almighty. And now I will lift your skirts so all the earth will see your nakedness and shame. I will cover you with filth and show the world how vile you really are. All who see you will shrink back in horror and say, Nineveh lies in utter ruin, yet no one anywhere will regret your destruction. Are you any better than Thebes, surrounded by rivers, protected by water on all sides? Ethiopia and the land of Egypt were the source of her strength, which seemed without limit. The nations of Put and Libya also helped and supported her, yet Thebes also fell, and her people were laid, led away as captives. Her babies were dashed to death against the stones of the streets. Soldiers cast lost to see who would get the Egyptian officers as servants. All their leaders were bound in chains. And you, Nineveh, will also stagger like a drunkard. You will hide for fear of the attacking enemy. All your fortresses will fall. They will be devoured like the ripe figs that fall into the mouths of those who shake the uh, trees. Your troops will be as weak and helpless as women. The gates of your land will be opened wide to the enemy and set on fire and burned. Get ready for the siege. Store up water. Strengthen the defenses. Make bricks to repair the walls. 
Go into the pits to trample clay and pack it into molds. But in the middle of your preparations, the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you down. The enemy will consume you like locusts, devouring everything they see. There will be no escape, even if you multiply like grasshoppers. Merchants, as numerous as the stars, have filled your city with vast wealth. But like a swarm of locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your princes and officials are also locusts, crowding together in the hedges to survive the cold. But like locusts that fly away when the sun comes up to warm the earth, all of them will fly away and disappear. O Syrian king, your princes lie dead in the dust. Your people are scattered across the mountains. There is no longer a shepherd to gather them together. There is no healing for your wound. Your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction will clap their hands for joy. Where can anyone be found who has not suffered from your cruelty? Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs> if you don't have um, access to a living Bible or the New Living, I don't suggest it for your normal, everyday study Bible, but it does help clarify a few things because when, if you read it in the New King James or New American Standard, some of those, it's just... Okay, who's he talking to? Who's he referring to? Because it's like it kind of goes back and forth. Some of it is addressed to comfort the people of God, the, the people in Judah and the slaves that had been taken when Assyria captured and took over the northern kingdom. And some is, is spoken directly to Nineveh. So for the message, I want to just go through this first chapter and basically divide it by Nahum, God, and Nineveh. So in chapter 1, uh, Nahum means comforter, and he truly was a comfort uh, um, that God's prophet would be to the Jews, bringing this message that their enemy, who had been so cruel, had caused fear and, and dread among all the nations, including Israel, would be uh, defeated, would be destroyed. Um, the southern nation was... Uh, attacked by the Assyrian army, but God intervened and did not let them completely take over, but they were having to pay tribute, pay taxes, pay money, so that the Assyrians would not invade them. Uh, so um, we know that what was given to Nahum was a prophetic uh, vision that the Lord allowed him to see. Nahum um, lived in Elkosh, uh, you're going to be able to talk more about him in Scripture. But um, God showed him what was going to happen to Nineveh, the city that had repented about 150 years earlier when Jonah had been sent there with a message of destruction, not even one of repentance, but of destruction. And we know the whole city repented. But somehow, we don't know which generation later, the very next generation or maybe the grandkids of those that repented, we don't know, but they turned away again. And most everything I read, they became worse than they had been. And we have to remember how bad Nineveh had been. We'll talk about that when we get there. So that's pretty much, we don't know much more about Nahum. He was a prophet of God. Uh, his name meant comforter, and he was a comfort to God's people as God used him to share this uh, vision that God had given him of what was going to take place. So number two, God. We learn much about God through this first chapter. Verse two, we learn he's jealous. He avenges, <clears throat> excuse me, he is furious. He will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath 
for his enemies. Well, now we know God is gracious, loving, merciful, <laughs> right, kind, good. And so sometimes it's hard for us to imagine and read about or hear about God and his wrath and this punishment that he was going to dole out, his judgment. Uh, we love the verse that says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? Because we know he's going to take care of our enemies, those that come against us. Uh, but most of the time when we think about God, we don't think about that side of, of God judging and pouring out wrath. Um, but he is full of wrath, and he declares he will avenge his people and take vengeance on those who oppose him. In verse 3, though, we read, the, low, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. He has his way in the whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. And I love this verse. I came across it years ago. My granddaughter, who's going to be 17 this month, happy March 1st, by the way. Uh, but in a few weeks, she'll be turning 17. And when she was very young, we were out walking one day. There were a lot of clouds in the sky. I had just come across this verse. And I said, Kayla, look up. Look at, look at all the clouds. You know what the Bible says those are? God's walking around. Those are just the dust. He's just stirring up dust as he's walking with us and watching over you and watching over me. And it just has been such a special verse um, to me to think about that. So next time you look out and you see the clouds, remember what the Bible says about God, God walking and just the clouds or the dust of his feet. Well, God is jealous. And I want to read you a few things about God being jealous from a book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and I'm just going to read you a little bit. But it says, the jealous God, doesn't it sound offensive? For we know jealousy, the green-eyed monster, as a vice, one of the most cancerous and soul-destroying vices that there is. Whereas God, we are sure, is perfectly good. How then could anyone ever imagine that jealousy is found in him? But we ask, what is the nature of this divine jealousy? How can jealousy be a virtue in God when it is a vice in men. And then he, use, he writes more, but then he uses an example of his wrath and then of his jealousy. His wrath is not the ignoble outburst that human anger so often is. It's a sign that is a sign of pride and weakness, but it is holiness reacting to evil in a way that is morally right and glorious. The wrath of God is precisely his righteousness and judicial action. And in the same way, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. And that's what we need to realize and recognize. Um, my husband and I dealt with his jealousy for years, and it almost destroyed our marriage. And it, it is very ugly, um, in human beings, um, and it's usually very selfishly based, where God's jealousy is a protective, uh, loving, selfless uh, jealousy who knows he wants the very best, and when he is jealous, it's because we're going after something that isn't his very best. And so he wants to protect us and keep us from settling for anything that is less than his best. Now, God is long-suffering. He gave Nineveh and the Assyrians years 
to repent of their evil, cruel ways. We know we sent Jonah, and for a while it changed. They changed, but it didn't last. So about 150 years, most say, after Jonah, the Lord spoke to Nahum about Nineveh, and it was possibly up to another 100 years. I've read different thoughts on the exact timing, but basically it was many years after um, this vision came before the actual destruction came when the Medes and the uh, Babylonians invaded and took over and, and uh, conquered the Assyrians. Um, we'll study that in the next two chapters as we go through. But God wills that none would perish, yet he never takes away man's free will. He gives every, Someone on Monday night said something about God sending someone to hell. And it's like, you know, God doesn't send anyone there. They choose because when they re reject his offer of salvation, his offer of mercy and grace, they're making the choice. So they, whether they realize it, and they're usually spiritually blind, so they don't, but God's given them every chance to exercise faith and to be saved from his wrath, the wrath that was poured out on Jesus for us. And he took our place and suffered the wrath that we deserved. But no one, God doesn't send them there. He gives them a choice and they choose. Okay, verse seven, the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who trust in him. So while the Lord was revealing the destruction that was gonna come to Nineveh, he was wanting to comfort his people, Judah. He was speaking to them. He wanted them to know that this horrible enemy had an end that was coming in the midst of it, he was reminding them who he was to them so they could take courage, they could be comforted, they could be reassured of who he was, of his great power, of his judgment that was justified against his enemies. And he declared he was good. He was a place of safety, a place of refuge in the times of trouble. And he knows those who put their trust in him. And so no matter what's going on in our lives today, we need to know God is good. We need to put our trust in him and know that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble, a very present help. He'll be a place of safety in the midst of our trouble. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. It's not like calling 911 and having to wait for the ambulance or the firemen or the paramedics or the police to get there. When you call on God, he's immediate. He's right there. He's your very present help because he's already there with you. He's immediate help. And he's a stronghold that the enemy cannot penetrate. So knowing these things about God should comfort us, not concern us. It should make us um, uh, strong in our faith and be assured, not afraid. As we read this side of God and the things that God can do and does do um, and has done, it, we, should, we need to know he's for us. He's not against us. So we should have great comfort and not be afraid, but be assured of who he is, that he's trustworthy and he knows when we put our trust in him. Okay, number three, Nineveh. Verse 15 reads, For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. As we've already said, we know Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian nation. It was a great city full of wealth, most of which had been taken from nations that they had conquered, from the spoils of those nations, or those 
nations that were being forced to pay for protection or so they wouldn't uh, invade them. They were wicked and cruel people, and we need to remember that. They tortured their enemies. They sometimes drove spears through them and just left them with the spear in them to, to bleed to death or um, skin them alive, <laughs> not always immediately killing them, uh, many times just taking them captive and making them slaves. And God didn't just one day say, you know what, I'm done. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't like these people anymore. But he had put up with their evil ways for time and time and time, years and years and years, watching what they had done. I watched a news thing the other night on these chemical weapons warfare that uh, has been released in Syria by the president against the rebels. And you saw, if you saw it, you saw these innocent toddlers, these babies, these these people laying in the streets like this is described. It's horrible. And it's like, how does God put up with that? Well, he, he's long-suffering. He was, withholds punishment. And his timing is not our timing. We'd wipe him out right now, but aren't we glad he didn't wipe us out before we were under that grace and had accepted Jesus as our Savior? But we need to know how awful they were. And he had given them years and years, chance after chance, to change but they continually rejected him. They ignored him. They fought against his people, and God said enough. And for a while, um, they had stopped their cruelty, but again, we don't know for sure how long. Um, and, and have you ever watched someone go forward in church or at a, a crusade? You know, they want to accept Christ. They go forward, and maybe for a day or two, it's like, yeah, they're saved. They, they accepted Jesus. And by the end of the week or the month, they're right back living in the pit of the world and their, their disgusted lifestyle that they did before they ever went forward. God knows when someone's conversion is real and when someone's going forward out of an emotional reaction and that there's really not a commitment being made. I went back to Iowa uh, years ago to do a women's retreat for a group of gals that had... It was a fairly new Calvary Chapel. People from Southern California had gone back to start a church. And they said, it is so hard. Here Iowa is in the middle of the Bible Belt, right? And they try to talk to people about Jesus. And they say, oh, you know, I said the sinner's prayer when I, when I was young. I, I'm good. They say the sinner's prayer and they think that they're okay for the rest of their lives. They never have to change. They never have to open their Bible. They don't have to go to church. They don't have to change their behavior at all. Well, God knows those that are truly his, right? And so I think uh, we, only the Lord knows how long the repentance of Nineveh lasted. But obviously, um, it didn't last. And every individual has to make their own choice. You've heard it said, God does not have grandchildren. Every person has to make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. You're not uh, factored in because you were raised in the church or in a godly home or your parents were, you know, on fire for the Lord or anything. You need to make that personal choice. So anyway, whatever reason, whenever it took place, Ninevites went back to their cruelty and brutal behavior. So we need to know that the Lord knows the hearts of men. He knows those who are his and who isn't and who will turn to him and who will not. So Nineveh was doomed. Their day of destruction was coming. What comfort 
that would bring to God's people. And for us today, we should be comforted knowing that our enemy, Satan, and the, the demons that followed him, as well as those that are living completely opposed to God and us, they don't accept Christ. There is a day coming, as Chris said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But they're not all, I mean, narrow is the way that leads to salvation, right? And broad is the way that leads to destruction. So we who have put our faith and trust in the Lord are never going to experience his wrath, this wrath that we read about against our sin because of Jesus. We need to so appreciate and not take for granted what Jesus endured for us with Easter coming, and we're going to be focusing in on his death and resurrection. Yes, we celebrate his resurrection, but we need to truly remember what he went through for us, bearing that wrath in our place. He endured what was due us, and now we're under God's grace and mercy, and he's jealous over us, always wanting what is best for us. We're his daughter, we're his bride, we're his friend. He's good, and he's a stronghold, ladies, in the day of your trouble. And just like the Jews' enemy, our enemy basically is already, it's almost like it's a done deal. He still has power over the unbeliever and will for a season until the Lord comes again, but his power over us has been broken at the cross. And so he'll oppress us, he'll try to, you know, trip us up and, and tempt us and come against us, but we have victory. We're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us, and we need to remember that. Um, the enemy uh, still has that rule, though, over unbelievers, so we need to pray. And when you're praying for someone else's salvation, you need to be praying that the enemy is bound from them, that they are free to hear and receive the gospel, because the enemy wants to keep them in darkness, even as he kept us in darkness until we were born again. But we have the victory, and the enemy will be destroyed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, and those that have gone before us, that we can learn and that we can grow, and that we can change where you are wanting to change us. So, Lord, our desire is to know you more fully to understand. Um, I know we'll never understand your ways. They're so far above us, but yet you want us to understand how much you love us and how your jealousy is, is a good thing to protect us, to keep us from settling for anything that is not from you and what you know is best for us. So Lord, help us to uh, just have a, a reverential fear of you, not a, a, a being afraid of you, Lord, but loving you, knowing that you loved us, gave your son, and that, Jesus, you were willing to die in our place and suffer that wrath. So, Lord, thank you that you freed us. Help us to walk in the freedom and the power you make available to us. And I pray, Lord, you bless the discussion groups that as the women share, they can minister one to another, Lord, as we continue to receive understanding from you of your word and how it applies to us. Thank you for this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.